Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Tell it to him, leave me alone. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. You can call him at home. Welcome to Torts Illustrated, Episode 7. I'm your host, Marie. Wait, disclaimer time. I am a lawyer. I am not your lawyer. This show is for fun, and we here on Torts Illustrated do not dispense legal advice. If you want legal advice, hire a lawyer. If you've done something bad enough, the government might even give you one. Okay, now, welcome to Torts Illustrated, where we discuss all things weird and wacky in the law from Old England to today. Glad to have you all back. Your host is a little bit sick this week, so if I sound somewhat scratchy in French, that's why. And if your children are listening, you may want to stop and have a discussion with them about the many forms of love that exist in our world, because today we're talking about some of the weirder ones out there. Did anyone ever watch that show Wife Swap? I think it was on ABC, and it was one of the first batch of terrible TLC-style reality shows. And it featured couples with different lifestyles and different morals swapping mothers for a week to see how things would go. Perhaps its most memorable episode featured a god-fearing, demon-discussing, fire-and-brimstone woman who got sent to a family full of heathen atheists. Good stuff, and it created some of the best gifts on the internet, so I encourage you to look it up. But to my knowledge, none of the couples on this show were truly swapping, meaning they weren't having sex with each other's spouses. Though, you know, who knows what goes on when the cameras are off, right? Maybe that lady likes to get freaky with the heathens. Is that a method of conversion? Because if so, I've been reacting totally wrong when foxy Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door. Yes, I would like a pamphlet, sir. Anyway, now that I'm definitely going to hell, I'm going to tell you how this all relates to today's case, Coker v. Whittington, which made it all the way up to the Fifth Circuit before being denied cert by the Supreme Court. Brandon Coger and Michael Golden, our plaintiffs in this case, were both sheriff's deputies in the great state of Louisiana. Shout out to all my listeners in Louisiana. Coger and Golden were lifelong best friends and often socialized together out of the office, along with their lovely wives, Farah and Lauren. They attended uh, cookouts, card games, and kids' parties together, and it seemed that all the parties involved were living a pretty happy life. Then something unusual happened. Apparently, over all this time hanging out together, Brandon Coker had fallen in love with Farrah Golden, his buddy's wife. Now, normally one would expect this to end like an episode of Cheaters. Lots of yelling and crying, maybe even a few punches thrown. But Michael Golden actually didn't mind that much, because he had fallen in love with Lauren Coker, Brandon's wife. Apparently, these guys were socializing together way too much. Now, faced with a very unique situation, the parties involved decided that the best approach was to go ahead and swap spouses. And not in the, you know, kinky, we swap our spouses every once in a while, but totally swap. Each living with each other's wife in each other's house. And they figured they would handle all the divorcing and the messy legal part later. In a way, this is kind of admirable, right? I mean, this was a very difficult personal situation, and they solved it in a pretty straightforward way. No muss, no fuss, just pack up your underoos and your coin collection and move right on into your buddy's house with your girlfriend, while he takes your wife off your hands. It's unorthodox, but probably the most drama-free way they could have handled this. 
And apparently their families were totally supportive too. They agreed with the swap, and all parties involved were pretty pleased with the situation. Unfortunately, their boss did not feel the same way. Remember, both men served as sheriff's deputies under Sheriff Julian Whittington. Sheriff Whittington, like many Louisianans, Louisians? Louisianers? People from the state of Louisiana, considered himself a Christian man and followed what he believed to be Christian morals. Now, I say what he believes because, as we all know, religious morals can be a bit of a moving target. One book says no shellfish, one book says no sex outside of marriage, one book says to cut a baby in half. It's all a bit messy. But Sheriff Whittington was pretty sure that it didn't include a neat and tidy wife swap with your BFF and co-worker. So once Whittington got wind of this new arrangement, he immediately suspended Corker and Golden for a violation of the Sheriff's Office Code of Conduct which prohibited deputies from participating in illegal, immoral, or indecent conduct, or anything that could make the department look bad. Now, not only were they suspended, but they were told they couldn't have their jobs back until they reversed the situation and went back to their original legal wives. And even if they did that, they were told they wouldn't get the old jobs that they had back. Instead, they would be demoted to jobs in the correctional center at a reduced salary. Pretty extreme reaction to some casual wife-swapping, don't you think? Well, Corker and Golden thought so. They sued the sheriff for violating their rights, stating that the rule was unfair and also vague. We're going to focus mostly on the lower court here, because the Fifth Circuit affirmed their decision and did so pretty briefly. The Fifth Circuit seemed to find this case both clear-cut and a little ridiculous, so all of our fun sparring happened in the lower court. Of course, I may have mentioned this in previous episodes, but sometimes legal cases, especially smaller ones from lower courts, can be a little hard to get your hands on. And this is not because they don't exist out there. It's because there are services that have kind of a chokehold on legal records online, and they're very expensive. I have access through my firm, but the way that they charge is they actually do it you know, per thing that you look at. So it's not just that I can log in and see them. It's a my firm gets charged for every document I look at on those services. Also, because I'm not a litigator, I haven't logged in in so long I've forgotten my login names. So if a case is not available for free online, I'm not going to be looking at it. And that's actually the case with the lower court decision here. So what I've done today is put together our discussion based off of the Fifth Circuit decision and then a bunch of articles that were written on this case. The nice thing about this is that it's so weird And it happened in a small enough town that there's actually a lot of articles written about it where we can put everything together. So the lower court, as far as I can tell in their decision, had three big issues to consider. The first is a constitutional issue. What level of scrutiny should be applied? Second, does the application of the sheriff's code violate their First Amendment rights? And third, was their due process right violated by the sheriff's code because it was too vague? So let's start with issue one, as I hear that is a very good place to start. What level of scrutiny does the court apply when examining the sheriff's actions and code? This always comes into play when there's a constitutional right in question. In this particular case, the plaintiffs claim that the sheriff's application of the code violates their First and Fourteenth Amendment rights to freedom of association and due process, both of which we'll get to in a little bit. When the constitutionality of something is challenged, the court has to decide how closely they look at the underlying law or concept. Strict scrutiny is the highest level of scrutiny. 
and this gets applied when legislation or government action discriminates on the basis of race, national origin, or a handful of other categories, or when a fundamental right is being challenged, like, for example, the right to marriage. So strict scrutiny was definitely flying around a lot when the gay marriage cases were working their way up the Supreme Court, for example. If the court decides to apply strict scrutiny, the burden of proof is on the government actor. So they have to prove that there's a compelling state interest behind the policy and that the law or policy is narrowly tailored to achieve that result. Now, we spend weeks and weeks on these concepts in law school, but in the interest of getting back to our wife swappers, the long and short of it is that under strict scrutiny, your law better have a really good reason to exist. And it has to be narrowly tailored, meaning it better be the least discriminatory way you could achieve the purpose that your law exists for. You don't get to just wildly discriminate because you have a good reason. There's a middle level of scrutiny, too, which is called intermediate scrutiny, and that's pretty self-explanatory. It's in the middle. It's a softer version of strict scrutiny. It's generally applied to cases of gender or sexual orientation discrimination. And the last level, and that's the level that the court applied in this case, is rational basis. This is the lowest level of scrutiny, and it's applied when none of the types of discrimination described above are present, and no fundamental rights are being violated. Under a rational basis review, the person challenging the law has the burden of proof. And the test is pretty easy for the government actor to pass. All they need is a conceivable rational basis for the law or policy, and a reasonable link between that interest and the law itself. Conceivable is an important word here, because remember, the burden of proof has shifted. So the government or the government actor doesn't even have to come up with this basis themselves or provide it. If the court can think of one that could conceivably work, that counts. This level of scrutiny was applied here because there's not a fundamental right or a discrimination based on one of our categories at play. Discrimination based on wife swapping or conceived immorality really isn't covered. I suppose there could be an argument to be made that the sheriff was forcing his religious beliefs on the deputies and that a higher level should apply, but as far as I can tell, that argument wasn't made here. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that cohabitation is technically still illegal in Louisiana. So it's not so much pushing his religious beliefs as punishing them for violating a law that no one has enforced. While level of scrutiny might seem like some sort of weird procedural thing that lawyers debate over, and it means more on paper, this can really have an impact on the outcome of a case. And the easiest example to show the difference I can think of is haircuts in a prison setting. There have actually been a fair amount of cases from prisons across the country, where prisoners fought to keep some aspects of their grooming outside of the prison rules and standards, whether that's keeping long hair, growing a beard, or wearing a head covering. In some cases, this is a personal preference, which would get the rational basis rule applied. In that case, the prisoner will almost always lose, because it's really easy for the prison to come up with some sort of rational rule to justify not allowing a prisoner to have their preference for long hair or a head covering. For example, a hat could be used to conceal a weapon, as could long hair, or, as a prison actually argued in one case, if a prisoner with a heavy beard escapes, they can change their appearance very rapidly just by shaving and escape capture. As someone who is a big fan of beards, I can say a person's appearance changes a lot when a beard is gone. So these are all rational enough reasons that the court can use it to kind of check the box and deny the request. 
In cases where the prisoner wants to do so for religious reasons, however, it generally receives strict scrutiny, because freedom of religion is a constitutionally guaranteed right. This comes up, for example, in the context of prisoners who follow Sikhism. They're required by their religion to have long hair, often covered by a turban. Having long hair and covering it with a turban is one of the tenets of their faith, and denying a Sikh man in prison a right to wear a turban and keep his hair long is denying his right to religious freedom, and courts generally will side with the prisoner in these cases because the rule doesn't hold up under strict scrutiny. Of course, I could see some reasons that the court could find a way to hold this up under strict scrutiny. Who knows, maybe uh, we have a prisoner with a violent history of hiding shivs on his person. It's been a while since con law class for me, and I honestly don't remember the many complicated ways these levels were applied. Point is, rational basis is a pretty weak standard of review, which leans towards upholding the rule. While strict scrutiny is a harder standard to meet and favors the person who is challenging the rule. In this case, we've got rational basis, our low standard. Okay, on to issue two. Have their First Amendment rights been violated? In this case, the First Amendment right we're referring to is freedom of association. It's not actually a name-checked right in the First Amendment, but the Supreme Court held in NAACP v. Alabama that it's an essential part of freedom of speech, since part of engaging in speech is engaging with others. After all, if a tree yells about how much it loves another tree's wife in the woods and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? Well, the Constitution thinks not. When people think of freedom of association, they think of freedom to join groups, like LGBT groups, unions, political associations, but it also encompasses intimate association. That means that people have the freedom to enter into and maintain intimate human relationships. That can include family relationships or private adult relationships, like shacking up with your buddy's wife. So the plaintiffs argued that their boss was infringing on their right to freedom of association with each other's wives by firing them. Now remember, we're applying rational basis here. So we're just looking to see if there is some conceivable rational reason for the sheriff's rules and his code and how he applied them. In this case, the court did find a conceivable rational reason for the rule against immoral behavior. And that's that deputies are representatives of a police department, and as such are supposed to be examples to all. They also noted that this rule advanced the legitimate law enforcement goal of securing the community's confidence in the integrity of its police officers. And the Fifth Circuit on appeal agreed with this, noting that the deputies handled sensitive cases like human trafficking, domestic abuse, and they needed to be beyond reproach so that the public could trust them. Their cohabitation with each other's wives was pretty out in the open, and according to the court, it violated the legally sanctioned relationships of marriage and family. They basically were saying that if these deputies were openly living a life that flaunts their disregard for legal bonds like marriage, how could people expect to trust the police department to enforce the law correctly? The Fifth Circuit summed this up by saying that sexual decisions between consenting adults take on a very different color when the adults are law enforcement officers. They cite two cases, Lawrence v. Texas and Garcetti v. Spalos, which together indicate that changing mores and expanding personal sexual choices don't necessarily mandate a change in policies where public employment is involved, and that public employees shed some of their constitutional rights as a legitimate exchange for the privilege of their position. 
Basically, if you want to be the face of the government to the public, it's okay to ask you to be a good one and a moral one. Feel free to pause here for laughter as you consider our current public government faces. Now, interestingly, the Fifth Circuit did add one unique thing to their discussion beyond just agreeing with the lower court. And that was distinguishing this case from Obergefell v. Hodges, famously known as the gay marriage case. That decision came down after the lower court's decision for Corker and Golden in 2015. And it's kind of cool the way the court distinguishes it, because it shows how far we've come as a country on the issue of gay marriage. While just a few short years ago, and in some places even today, people were screaming about gay marriage being a slippery slope into sin and Sodom and Gomorrah and people marrying their hamsters, But the Fifth Circuit distinguishes this case from Obergefell because Obergefell fought for the unique and special bond created by the formal marital relationship. So basically, they say it's not relevant here because gay marriage honors the importance of marriage as a legal and special bond, something the gay community fought for and because it's special and important. While this case mocks that bond with its plaintiffs explicitly living with lovers while still married to other people. While I'm not sure all the moralizing and pearl-clutching is needed over Golden and Corker, it's cool to see the court holding gay marriage up as an example of the sanctity of marriage, and it definitely shows how far we've come. Now, finally, we come to issue three. Was due process violated by the sheriff's code rule because it was too vague to provide fair notice to the plaintiffs that they were actually violating the law? As a final hurrah, Golden and Corker argued that the code was too vague in its wording and enforcement and was thus a violation of their due process rights under the Constitution. Whoa, that's a lot of buzzwords. Due process means that the state must respect your legal rights. Now, it can take on a lot of forms, but in this case, the due process we're talking about is a prohibition against vague laws. A law is vague and unenforceable if the average person can't understand it. Now, if you've ever read a statute, you might feel like they all qualify, but basically what they're talking about here is... Laws have to state explicitly what they mandate and what's enforceable. So if a law is vague enough to deprive citizens of their rights to fair process, it's unconstitutional, since it violates due process. Since we're dealing with some sexy subject matter here, here's a sexy example. Florida's sodomy ban was ruled unconstitutional in 1971 because it was too vague. The statute, which was written all the way back in 1868, simply read that it was illegal to commit and, and I quote, abominable and detestable crime against nature with mankind or beast. This is bonkers vague. I mean, the beast part, I get. Don't have sex with your pets, guys. But the rest of it is totally dependent on your understanding of those words. And without further definition, people could get what they consider a little freaky and violate this law without knowing it. In the end, that's what we're trying to prevent. Laws that people can violate without any understanding that they're actually breaking the law. In this case, we're talking about the officer's code of conduct, which requires deputies who are public employees to act at all times in such a manner as to reflect the high standards of the office and to refrain from any illegal, immoral, or indecent conduct or any legitimate act which, when performed in the view of the public, would reflect unfavorable, that's a spelling error, unfavorably, on the Bossier Sheriff's Office. Now, Golden and Corker argued that this code is worded vaguely on its face. They also argued that it was applied vaguely because it seemed to be applied just to them. 
Apparently, the Bozier Parish Sheriff's Department was a crazy place. They cited other potential immoral or indecent conduct that was done without punishment, including a deputy living as husband to his daughter-in-law, a deputy engaged in a lesbian affair with another deputy's wife, a pair of actual swingers, and a deputy with a habit of hiring prostitutes. So with all these things going unpunished, they argued that there's no way they could have known that their wife swap would violate the rules. Of course, the court didn't agree with this argument either. First of all, as we talked about earlier, cohabitation, meaning living together while unmarried, is still illegal in Louisiana. It's not enforced a lot because I think it's one of those laws that is just kind of lingering on the books without getting lifted, but it is technically illegal. So there was clear illegal conduct here, which is part of the code. Moreover, the standard for unconstitutional vagueness is that an average person couldn't understand what would be a violation of the rule. Now, I don't have that underlying court decision, but I think in small town Louisiana, any person could probably predict that openly living with another man's wife would be considered indecent and would reflect badly on the department. Of course, so would most of those other acts they name, but hey, those people aren't in court, are they? So I guess they disregarded that. The Fifth Circuit agreed quite concisely, noting that the Code of Conduct is not unconstitutionally vague as written or enforced. And in the end, they totally affirmed the lower court. Golden and Corker were not satisfied with this, and so they appealed their case to the Supreme Court in 2017, determined to have it all, life as a deputy and each other's wives. The Supreme Court denied cert and didn't hear their case. Now, a note about cert or certiorari, which is hard to say, so we usually call it cert. After you appeal to the circuit court, if you don't like your decision there, you can appeal to the Supreme Court in a writ of cert. Now, they get about 5,000 of these a year, and they hear about 100. So your odds of getting your case up in front of Ruth are pretty low, and you're probably going to get denied, just like Golden and Corker did. This means that the underlying decision stands. So in this case, when Golden and Corker were denied cert, the underlying Fifth Circuit decision stood, and they unfortunately did not get their jobs back. And that also means that at least in Louisiana, there's a precedent for a public employee to have their job taken away based on their immoral conduct, decided by their boss at the time, without a lot of definition on what immoral means. There's a lot of way that you could potentially skew this precedent. I mean, what if I'm a well-known Satanist and I run a public department and I believe that my employees, by not making blood sacrifices, are acting immorally under my Satanist code? Now, this is an absurd example, of course, but you can see how a precedent that seems a little bit bad can suddenly become very bad. And sometimes lawyers will specifically take these cases where the precedent has been made absurd just to get the case up to the Supreme Court. That's what happens with a lot of uh, hot button issues. Lawyers search for a case that is particularly good for getting cert from the Supreme Court. They pick something really juicy and really on point and try and get it up there. But for now, there is a bit of a dangerous precedent set in Louisiana. For whatever reason, the Supreme Court didn't feel the need to take this one up and clarify the issue. Maybe it'll come up again in another circuit and our wife-swapping deputies will finally get their vindication. That's it for this week, folks. Next week, we are going to talk about cults, including the infamous Westboro Baptist Church. 
So if you've got cases you'd like to hear about, or you just want to tell me this podcast is terrible, or if you've got dirt on Westboro Baptist, you can email me at tortsillustratedpodcast at gmail.com. Until next week, this has been Torts Illustrated. I'm your host, Marie, asking that when you kill all the lawyers, please spare me. Mm-hmm.